0: I'm mm-hmm.
1: Find the people who aren't used to being in theater. Find the theater kid, the one who's like fine with the lights bl- like blinding them. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Erica.
2: I can't see anything. It's so bright. Oh
1: my God.
3: Oh, this is recording. I'm Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm William. Great to be here. <laughs>
2: Feels like we're in the upside down. I, I and mean, people who, who are listening to this can't see this, but l- behind us, it, there's these these. Fl- Floating lights that look like the Upside Down from Stranger Things.
1: But, like, less scary?
2: Nope. <laughs> nope,
1: same
3: amount. Oh. Don't turn around. Don't turn around.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, for those of you who are unfamiliar with us, Eric and I host this podcast weekly, and it is about pop culture and feminism and politics and current events. And we really kind of mix it up and... I don't think we fight with each other. We fight with the world.
0: Yeah, it's (laughs) it's like pure rage simmering all the time.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the real world. And a lot of a lot of people ask us which one's bad and which one's bitchy. And honestly, it really just depends on the day. Yes.
0: (laughs) Just ask David.
1: (laughs) (laughs) David's like, I don't want any part of this. Don't (laughs) say anything. Um, and for those of you who don't know, we are joined by several guests tonight. We've got David Mosscrop, who is a writer, podcaster, commentator, and the author of a brand new Substack. stack um, And it, it's, the substack's called David Mosscrop.
2: Yeah, go with what you know.
1: Very, very original. And then... <laughs> it's pretty good, by the way. Yeah, you're doing a good job. Yeah, thank you. Congratulations.
0: Oh, we just got our full subscription, so I don't know that.
2: I sent them free subscriptions.
0: Today. <laughs>
2: yeah. Thank you for your
1: support. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, we get what we pay for, I guess. Oh! And then at the end, we've got William Johnson, who is a writer, speaker, and publisher with Overstory Media Group based out of Vancouver. And so right now we're just going to kind of get kick it off with a discussion on current events. And basically what we, what we were talking about in the green room was the thing that has just been on a lot of people's minds over the past three weeks and that is the debacle happening at Twitter. (laughs) And so for those who don't know a little bit of backstory, three weeks ago, Elon Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion, just some light pocket change, and that set off what can only be described as a truly chaotic series of events. In his first couple of days, Musk slashed the company's workforce by half and more recently let several thousand contractors go, many of whom work on things like, you know, content moderation, which I don't know if that's really important. Who needs that? He's also fired employees who criticize him either on Twitter or in the company's Slack, while also trimming infrastructure costs. And he also held a bizarre town hall on Twitter spaces, which is a strange place for a town hall because it was for advertisers as a way to assuage their fears about their investment in advertising on the platform itself. Um, and so, you know, they once the chaos began, advertisers started pulling their money. And he also has heavily pushed for subscription services, most notably, notably a revamp of the Twitter Blue service, which was launched right after the US midterms a couple of weeks ago, and allowed anyone on the platform to pay $8 a month to get the blue check mark by their name, which is something that is traditionally bit signaled that a given account actually belongs to the person it's supposed to. And while this new system signaled instead that they had just ponied up the $8, so congratulations to them, I suppose. Um, And this kind of led to a scenario of massive disinformation and impersonation across the platform. And this move was done as a way to, in theory, diversify Twitter's revenue streams, as Musk says that the company may go bankrupt soon. And then uh, most recently, I think two days ago, Elon emailed employees saying that the expectation for them now was to go hard and that they had to work insane hours. And if they weren't on board, then they would be fired. And the deadline for that decision was 5 p.m. this afternoon. And, well, since then, it seems that 75% of staff have opted to uh, not do that. Can't imagine why seems very normal. Um, And so, Erica, I know that the four of us in particular and our other guests this evening are all addicted to Twitter, and we have this weird love-hate relationship with it. I'm live-tweeting now. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect example. Ah. Um, But I I also know that Twitter isn't necessarily reflective of things going on in the rest of the world. Um, So... Does Twitter provide any value, and what is it?
0: So, um, I'm going to attempt to log into the Hill Times because I actually wrote about this this week. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, while this thing is, um, <laughs> I don't know what it's doing, honestly. So, I joined Twitter because a there was an earthquake in 2011, and I thought it was I thought it was really cool that you know, you could hear and see and, you know, experience it almost with other people who were going through the same thing across the border. And honestly, I got better updates with that than I did with the news. So, I mean, that was always, I think, a benefit of Twitter, but let's be honest, I stayed on Twitter because that's where the black people were, right? And the discussions that, like, let's be honest, black Twitter made Twitter. Without black Twitter, you, thank you, you wouldn't have live tweeting, right? Because live tweeting was 2012. Black women got together and started live tweeting scandal. That's how live tweeting started. You had Vine. You had um, all sorts of things going on. And there was this really kind of creative hub of people that were and there's still there still is of people you could learn from and like you could do you could actually um, have great discussions with. And then uh, Twitter also houses the dumbest motherfuckers alive. So um, what I did write was um, many people think Twitter is a waste of time is a waste of time frivolous social network and that's why I don't consult those people on anything because they don't understand the world in which they live. Twitter is one of, if not the most powerful social media network on this side of the Atlantic. It is the water cooler of the 21st century where news breaks, social issues are unpacked, history is unearthed, and coups, uprisings, and revolutions foment and galvanize. However, given its importance, Twitter has never made a lot of money, if any. Its user acquisition profile has been flat over the years. And in 2021, Twitter only made $5 billion in revenues, whereas Instagram took in $47.6 billion in revenues. And I think when it comes to Twitter, that's always been the business side has always kind of, Underrated Twitter because you look at the business side, you see flat profiles and stuff like that. But I think it's more of a it should be more of a social good than it is.
1: David, what do you what do you do you think Twitter has any value?
2: Oh, it has a lot. Not of not
1: value. necessarily monetarily, because clear, that's clearly does doesn't.
2: Yeah, it has a lot of value. I, I think part of of the challenge is that it's primarily a written medium, and people. Traditionally, don't want to go have fun and write. (laughs) What? (laughs) Because it's not. I mean, uh, uh, it's fun for some people, but I think most people they they, when they're curating their online selves, the sort of phony, the the face you prepare to meet other faces, as uh, T. S. Eliot would put it. uh, You know, they do it on Instagram, on TikTok, or on Facebook, where it's a little easier, I think, to do that. Uh, On Twitter. It's a different sort of thing. So I think it's really challenging. And I think that's part of the reason you find that it's just full of sort of vainglorious, self-interested, self-obsessed journalists like like us <laughs> and uh, celebrities and so on and so forth because, you know, there you can go and you can make every last single fleeting thought public. And that's appealing to people like us uh, who think there's some value to that. Uh, but at the same time, though, it, it is a community and it creates an awful lot of fantastic connections that end up being quite meaningful Um, and then you have are you talking about us well yeah in a sense i am i mean i met you folks through twitter i met um you know i I met you through twitter we this is the first time we ever met in person um you know i've met a, a number of people through twitter that i ended up working with hanging out with, becoming friends with and it creates these massive communities and if you look right now at people online they're genuinely grieving for the loss of this thing because it wasn't just a website or diversion, as Erica points out. It was a community for them. And it went beyond the water cooler to create real, meaningful social connections that, in many cases, spilled into IRL. And now that's being compromised by the extraordinarily vainglorious, self obsessed, non genius billionaire who's taken this on as a sort of vanity project and immediately face planted. So uh, you know, there's an extraordinary amount of value there. But the ultimate r- reminder that comes from all this is that um, you know if we don't own communally these spaces, they're always going to be at risk to, ha- to being taken away from us. And um, it's a great reminder that especially in the digital world in the, in the 21st century, we've got to tr- create as many uh, you know connections a- at the grassroots level in real life across different mediums so that we can preserve those communities because otherwise they can
3: just be ripped out from under us overnight like this one is. So I think it's funny. Usually when I'm on panels, I'm the, the token black person, but Erica has taken that for me tonight. So I think I will be the <laughs> the token uh, I con- <laughs> Cont-
0: oh. sorry I intersect is what I said.
3: <laughs> so maybe I I will just be the the contrarian some of the time tonight to make things really interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I, again, Twitter provides immense value to me and to David's point to you know the folks on the stage here. Um, At the same time, Twitter has 220 million users, right? For context, Facebook has over two billion. Apparently, the world has over eight billion people right now. Um, So I look at Twitter and I think that perhaps we are, I don't know, um, projecting more value onto it than it it really provides society, just based on the amount of people that actually use it. Um, Like, like to use, I guess, language that David, perhaps, you, you would like really resonate with, you have an election. A government gets elected with, you know, 38% of the vote. You think, you know, oh, that's only 15 to 20% of, you know, eligible electorate. So, do they really have a mandate? And so, I, we look at a tool like Twitter, where, it's like, constantly out of the population, barely anyone is on Twitter. Like, to be quite honest. Um, and so, we ascribe all this value to this tool. Uh, I, I find it valuable, but at, at the same time, I think a lot of people don't really think about it much.
0: The normals.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Eric and I have a bit about the normals, which is just what we call people who aren't entrenched in Twitter, media, and politics. Um,
0: no, it's more than that. You know, it's people... No, but,
1: know but know. that's how I mean it. Yeah. <laughs> because, like, what's it What's it like to have a normal life and not have to worry about these things? That's basically what it means Yeah, to me.
0: seriously. What I, I is mean, that like to own... Like, to be really angry about snow removal, you know?
1: And, and not, like... The election that just happened, or the the government that's being formed in Israel, you know, like, right, you know, I am like, wow, that's amazing, and I try to like not worry about it, but it doesn't happen,
0: no, because we know too much, <sighs> like a okay.
1: Pandora's
2: box, it is, but but at the same time, I mean, here's the thing. It is a business owned by very poor business people, but it is a business. And it is designed in the classic uh, you know, contemporary technological fashion of creating a slot machine, right? That people just are standing in front of every day. And you carry this slot machine with you, and you pull it out to see if you get a little notification, and the notification is counterintuitively a victory, despite the fact that it's probably going to take a lot of time and attention, and maybe it's someone who wants to kill you or says they want to kill you. You, if you get death threats, which I do, uh, or hate mail, which Erica, we, we, Erica, who is in the middle of the uh, of being har- uh, harassed by uh, and threatened as a, as a journalist knows very very well. And so, but that's what it is. And the, and the goal is of course to keep your eyeballs on the site so that they can sell you ads and generate more revenue. I mean, this is the business model. This is the design of, of the technology. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes what's happening there is the community building I talked about earlier, but also you come across the most extraordinary pieces of random trivia information that is deeply fascinating. A, you know I, One of the accounts I follow is, is the Bosch bot, which is just an account that tweets um, images of bosch paintings Uh, what do you call them Um, you know when when they take a small piece of a painting what's that called i
1: have no idea there's a name
2: you know when you when you when you take a small picture of a a larger picture and you share it there's a name for it sure i can't remember what it's called but then they, they just tweet these things but every but it's fascinating because now in real time randomly throughout the day you'll get a little snippet of a bosch Painting that you just would have never noticed in a million years because they're extraordinarily complicated, but it's deeply fascinating. Or you get a thread about like how medieval monks invented the I don't know trebuchet. Don't, that's not true, but something like that. And, and you come away thinking, oh my god, that's extraordinarily fascinating. I'm going to chase down this rabbit hole. And then you, and before you know it, you've you know you've you've activated a part of your brain that might otherwise be dormant, and that's extraordinarily fascinating. And um, it's going to be kind of sad to lose that because where else can you go? A library, I guess. Yeah. But but where? But genuinely like, where else can you go to have that kind of experience? Almost nowhere. But
0: you can't talk to anybody about it in the library, and that's no, exactly. And that's what's great it. about twi- it's the sharing. Share. And the one thing that that ruined social media was business, was marketing, was ads, was and it was. It, it, I mean, they were always going to win out because you know once you have shareholders, you have to um, earn, but the original vision for these digital communities wasn't a bad one. It, it's just that we, <laughs> we added capitalism to it and it just went to shit. <laughs> it's basically what happened, right?
3: Detail. It's called the detail.
0: Oh, no, I know. Will, will, I want to say
1: something. Oh,
3: I wanted to ask you, David. Do you think Twitter, like the Twitter that you know in your Bosch paintings, do you think that's actually under threat?
2: Oh, if the, if the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, I guess I'll just go to, not Pinterest. What's the other one? TikTok, Tumblr. Is Tumblr still around? Tumblr
3: still around. Yo, around. Tumblr. Tumblr's
0: can't you. Tumblr is still good. Is it yeah. really? Oh, okay.
3: oh. Up there gets oh. it. Reddit, I've been I on guess. Tumblr
2: since I mean. like 2012. But but it so. raises an interesting question, which is, you know, would it be better if we had an internet that was more uh, a collection of decentralized? communities where, okay, you would not everyone was on Twitter all the time, but you might be on TikTok or Reddit or Mastodon or Blue Sky or whatever. You know, you, Twitter didn't have to be the clearinghouse for everyone. You were free to go and be on these other communities more, which sort of exists now, but Twitter tends to hog all the attention of the mainstreamers. But what if that was was decentralized and dissipated? Maybe so, be so you're
1: saying like the, the Game of Thrones people are on Reddit and then you've got quote-unquote black Twitters now on Tumblr, like, like that?
2: No, 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 just that, just, you, just that where we weren't beholden to all be in one place that would be centralized and controlled by one person. But
0: there's a problem with that.
2: Well, I, I don't think There's a are. problem with that's, that.
3: That's, that's, oh, go ahead, Erica.
0: Yeah, it's discovery. That's the problem. It's the cross pollen, like, the cross-discovery. The amount of things I've discovered on Twitter, you know? Honestly, I did, I, a lot of the time I'm just there for the jokes. <laughs> Discover the jokes, then. You know, and I I think that's the problem is that because Twitter was this big sort of cauldron, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, you could jump between those communities really easily. Sorry, Will.
3: No, no, nothing to apologize. No,
0: I think I think that having like it centralized
1: like that just like mimics other platforms, right? Like TikTok, depending on what sides, you know, you, you probably are on three to five different sides of TikTok and they all kind of aggregate in one feed, regardless of whether you're following them or they're being fed to you, right? So you've got these fi- three to five interests that are coming up again and again, and then occasionally the algorithm will try to feed you something else, and then if it knows that you like it, then it'll just give you more. So it's all of the, cent- the social media are centralized. They're just not unnecessarily, they don't feel as chaotic as Twitter does because the lifespan of a tweet is like what five seconds? Whereas like if you're on TikTok, you're watching anywhere from a five to three minute video, so it slows it down. It's not coming at you at this relentless pace.
3: I, I think the biggest issue with Twitter, and I know David, you're saying people didn't necessarily like writing, but it is probably one of the sort of least friction I can post something witty or yeah. you know inflammatory. Uh, tools out there, right? And, and that's why there's such, so much nonsense on Twitter.
2: Yeah, every day is, uh, you know, it's funny, is, uh, people have been telling me for years, people who, who care about me or who, who
3: purport to care about me, that
2: you know, like every day we wake up and it's just like, uh, is this going to be the day that he torpedoes his career? Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and for a period of time, I really, I, I was a bit concerned about that because I thought, well, maybe they're on to something. Um, but it never happened, and and I kept, you know, I was always a little bit trepidatious. But then I realized, uh, if you don't punch down, if you punch up, and you are you're you're not you're not a phony, and people know what to expect, then I think you're okay. But there is a certain sort of yeah. Erica gets it, but there is a certain sort of of rush every day to open up, you know, to get wait to wake up to to turn to your phone to take your phone out to open the app and think. Well, I'm going out onto the high line again today with no net, <laughs> and we're going to see what happens in front of all these people. And I think back to the to the case of the woman this this infamous case of the woman who sort of said, you know, I'm going to where was she going? Somewhere in Africa. I hope I don't. What was what was the case? Oh yes. You know?
0: 2013 uh, it was like One of
2: the I original
3: oh, yes. yes. yes.
0: Executives yeah. 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 yeah She was an executive Or something And she said Oh I'm going to Africa I hope I don't get AIDS yeah. Or something And then she got on a just flight Just kidding I'm white Just yeah. kidding I'm white And then she got on a flight And she didn't
1: have access Yes And then Yeah Then Twitter made fun of her Has Justine landed yet
2: Right yep. And then, and then she lost her job, right? Was that ultimately? I don't know yeah. where yeah. it yeah. went, but but that was I remember that case stuck with me for a long time. Of a, of, well, you know, you don't know, and, and you know, it's hard to communicate if you're being ironic or if you're actually trying to be critical about something. And so, you know, so if you're doing, we're doing hermeneutics all the time with this sort of thing, and people on the internet will just we'll simply not give you the benefit of the doubt for the most part, unless you have a bit of a relationship with you. So you're out there every day just trying to not get yourself thrown overboard. Um, but this is the side of Twitter that we need to explore more. It does create um, a, a tension in which our worst impulses are, are farmed day to day because they're good for the algorithm, dogpiling, for instance. I was saying in the parking lot coming in, uh, on Mastodon, at least on my server, there's no quote tweet. And I really like that. Because the quote tweet yeah. encourages dogpiling and, and, and a lot of, uh, of bullying. And, and doing away with that minimizes the amount of that because all you can do is, is reply or share. And so I, I do think if we were to lose that element of the culture, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because a lot of people have been through a lot of abuse. Some of them, you know, we could say ha- had it coming. <laughs> you know, there are people who... Let's be honest. They say sure, some extraordinarily yeah. awful things sure, and they yeah. need to be held accountable for that. But a lot of people who are never given the benefit of the doubt and, and the mob jumps immediately to the worst possible reading of what they said have been dragged and gone through a lot of pain. And, and as well as people who just say true things that are critical about the world who go through the same pain. I, I'm not convinced that losing that is such a bad thing.
1: So in terms of Elon and Twitter… Several top executives have also either quit or been fired in the past three weeks, signaling that there doesn't seem to be a ton of support inside the company for Elon, and I guess as evidenced by, I guess, this seeming mass exodus today.
0: Apparently there are only 238 left and counting. That's the number of characters in a tweet. Oh! (laughs) Uh, Uh, RIP Twitter is trending. Oh, yeah.
1: So additionally, um, Elon's actions are obviously nothing short of toxic, giving employees his ultimatum, um, pretending, saying things like, oh, comedy's allowed back on the platform, but then like not liking when people make fun of you, et cetera. And so what does this mean for the company going forward, and there, why are there so many of these quote unquote business types, such as Paul Graham, the co-founder of Y Combinator, um, happy to continue to give Elon the benefit of the doubt. William, any thoughts? So,
3: so I'm I'm not a business person, and I think this. But is you Paul's, love business. I books. think this is Paul Graham's point, which is that um, you have a lot of people who previously were not interested in uh, the business dealings of Twitter now suddenly experts on how Twitter should be run. Um, personally, yeah, some of Elon's actions absolutely toxic. But I'm also not gonna say what should be done. I, I have I have no right to do that. To your point, Aaron, just a bit further. Yeah, I, I I've seen the <laughs> I follow Aaron on Twitter, obviously, so I I see her tweeting at all these people. Um, and I think Paul Graham's quote was somewhat like, "Who are people to sort of judge Elon running Twitter when he has run SpaceX and Tesla?" And I, Aaron, I forget your tweet, but it was really who a is point. Paul
1: Graham? He's a co-founder
3: of
0: Y Combinator.
1: He,
3: of what? So Paul Graham is the legend for people in that <laughs> world. He, he's Paul Graham's a legend. You
0: all are talking about this dude like I'm like, <laughs> what is? Why Combinator
1: is where Reddit went through.
3: Dropbox, like oh, Airbnb. Yeah, the, like, the accelerator. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Th- yeah.
3: This guy has some credibility, but to Aaron's point: it's why why is he constantly defending Elon Musk? I yeah. don't know if he's defending Elon Musk.
1: So so but yeah. So basically, Paul Graham tweeted that like we should give. Elon, the benefit of the doubt, because he has these, like, massive companies. Okay, no, 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 wait.
0: Tesla. Okay, let's talk about Tesla. No, no, so no, wait, no, no, wait. no, no, Erica. no, no no. <laughs> no, 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 I just want to say this. I just want to say this. Tesla, that, A, is going through its own racial discrimination thing. Mm-hmm. I understand they separated the black people from the white people, and I'm just like, oh, apartheid. <laughs> yeah. What did you expect, right? Uh, and don't Teslas have a just a nasty habit of just bursting into flames?
3: So, so you read about the couple that were in the news. Is what the it couple? Like. The couple. <laughs> Handful.
0: Oh, okay. That number's going up <laughs> mighty quick. Okay. <laughs> and SpaceX at least didn't do that, I guess. Yeah.
1: Um, but anyway, my point was that like. I'm just saying this
0: this 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 hero worship that we have, especially when it comes to business and businessmen. men, um, I just I'm just like I always thought he was overrated. And it's because we take these people, we, we they do one good thing, and we're like, oh my god, oh my god, genius. Look yeah. at him. Well, yeah. Oh my exactly. god, look how innovative.
1: Well, he he well, did three, he did that's, three that's, things, not Well, that's one, exactly the, the thing. My point, though, right? Is like but Tesla burst into flames. I don't want a Tesla. I we, was in a Tesla. We said, um, that I said basically, like, okay, like, SpaceX, spaceships, Tesla, cars. Both of those things are hardware. Twitter is a, a social network. It's where people go to converse, to create community. And Elon doesn't seem to understand what that means. So that's like literally comparing like asking like a car mechanic to dire, like compose a symphony. Right? Like I I wouldn't ask a car mechanic to compose a symphony because I don't think he can. Right? There's a tar joke in here somewhere but I just don't know it cuz I haven't seen the movie. Um <laughs> Anyway, all that to say is like yeah, this hero worship just because someone's good in one area doesn't mean that they're going to be good in another area and it's usually men particularly white men who get these opportunities that women of color wouldn't.
2: But th- there's more to it. I, th- I think push that even further. We have a, a tendency to, to uh, you know mimic the sort of great man theory of history to this day when we think that things are done by one person. and it's typically a rich person or a powerful person with a lot of money and like you said they tend to be male, they tend to be white. but, but the whole idea that one person builds anything, is, is so patently uh, false that it ought to be obvious to everyone who looks at these things that these uh, things are built always by many people and they're sustained and grown by many people. And it's the workers who create these things and sustain them, as we're learning at Twitter, as people leave and the thing f- crumbles to dust. And you, you know, you, someone might come up with an idea. They might put the, the legwork into to launching something but they go to Y Combinator. They go at th- uh, out into the world and are built by, by many. And the fundamental problem is that we keep going back to this idea that there's a single person who can come in and solve all their problems or run the, sh- the show entirely, when the fact is that it's always, uh, almost always, uh, a community that builds and maintains these things. So I, what I think we need to do is completely shift our mindset away from this idea that it's ever the case that one person can come in and fix something, when it ought to be a sort of broader deliberative, community-based thing. Um, and, and it's part of the reason I like Mastodon. I don't get money from this, by the way. Th- but, but, you know, Mastodon is decentralized, and uh, it exists across different servers that are run differently, and then it's federated into one big space. But it, it's, it's you know, supported by the many. And um, I, I think if we shift our mind towards that, we'd, we'd all be far, far, far better off Because you get better results when you have more of a community-driven approach, a deliberative approach, rather than a sort of tyrannical, top-down approach, uh, as Elon Musk is illustrating extraordinarily well with this, right?
1: So what you're saying is you're a (laughs) crypto-bro.
2: Well, (laughs) decentralized I like. Uh, Ponzi schemes less, less so. Incidentally, although incidentally, look what happens in crypto when you hold up a handful of people as the sort of gods and goddesses of crypto, yeah. Um, and you and you s- try to centralize again, it's funny because crypto is you know this great decentralized thing, except for you have these major exchanges that seem to hog up a lot of space, and when they go, the whole thing risks going. So,
1: we're uh, not going to get on my crypto rant. But, <laughs> but I'm just saying, I'm just
2: saying, is again, it's, it's it even that we have this tendency towards it, this, this centralization drive, which I think is deeply, deeply, deeply corrosive, and we need a big structural social mind shift uh, away from the one into the many.
0: But isn't that what we were getting to during the pandemic? We kind of realized that we needed each other. For 15 minutes. For 15 minutes and now everybody wants to put the genie back in the bottle?
2: Well, white people tried to steal oh. mutual aid and solidarity. Remember? The, what? The, you know, white people did what? Yeah. I know. It seems it seems it doesn't seem on brand for white people to steal things from from other folks. <laughs> but, but let me tell you. I feel the,
0: culturally stalked by white people sometimes. Uh, yeah. I'm just saying.
2: No, but but seriously, I mean, I remember I I spoke to uh, a friend of mine and colleague, uh, Dr. Yvonne Sue, at the at the outset of the pandemic, and I wrote this piece about mutual aid and solidarity for the Post. And um, you know, the critique was, oh, it's great. We had this moment of mutual aid and solidarity, which is fantastic. By the way, you know, white people are walking around acting like they invented this when it's existed in racialized cultures, uh, communities for a long time. It's existed among uh, disabled folks for a long time, and you know. White people come along. I, I've got. I've come up with this great idea. What if communities just helped each other? But the critique was, well, the, the, s- the state ought to be doing a lot of this work that it's not doing. But for 15 minutes, we were all, we were banging our pots and pans. We were coordinating grocery runs. We were doing, and then. But what but said to me was, just watch. So she studied what happens in post disaster communities. She's like, just watch. It's going to vanish like that overnight. It's going to and it's going to turn and it's going to be real nasty. And, and by God, that's exactly what happened. So, um, you know, asterisk,
0: right? So why can't white people stick with the program? Because I'm seeing this a lot with these diversity issues, which <laughs> I always knew would happen because I know white people. Um, <coughs> no, because I guess this should be rant. But the whole thing is, is that I feel like there's, there's this, yes, we need to do this, and, and then they figure out, oh shit, this is hard. Oh shit, you lose most of the time? Fuck, I don't want any of this. And then they're gone, they're out. They're like, oh look, <laughs> Timmy's is open. You know what I mean? And that's it. And I'm seeing that a lot, especially with diversity, with mutual aid, with community, with, with, with recognizing um, vulnerable people in this in the in our society, and actually, you know, there was a time when people were more together, and and now I feel as though everybody is just split apart again.
1: All right, so we're gonna just qu- quickly shift gears here. So, David, you wrote a recent post on your Substack called "David Moscrop." <laughs>
2: That, that's that, the name of the Substack, not the post. Yeah, it's not like no, no, David I'm, Moskrop wrote David Moskrop on David Moskrop. I, yeah, I, no. Yeah. So you
1: wrote a post on your Substack, it's so meta, David Moskrop, That was a follow up to your book, which is called Too Dumb. David Moskrop! <laughs> which is a which was which is called Too Dumb for Democracy, which you should buy from a local bookstore. And then if you're lucky, David will sign it for you. <laughs> uh, anyway, in your post, you raised the point that we still continue to make bad political decisions even though we are, and that we will likely continue to do so because there are so many demands on our attention, there are structural issues that prevent us from being informed, and then there's like emotional aspects of being well informed, and that also help prevent us from acting as a rational human among many other reasons. And so I guess my question to you is, do you like being a killjoy?
2: Oh yes, very much. I I, I make hundreds of dollars a year. <coughs> it's extraordinarily <laughs> lucrative, and <laughs> yeah, there's there's always a, a a class of people in history whose job it is to say, eh, 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 I don't know, and uh, you know they they historically they would they were often persecuted or put to death.
1: Now. Now you just go on Twitter.
2: Now you just go on Twitter and get dragged. Although, I, I, and again, I think it's extraordinarily important. And one of the points I keep raising is, look, uh, this feels a little bit like I think France in 1788 must have felt like.
0: Oh, dang.
2: Now, Aaron said before the show. That <laughs> I wasn't, oh, my God. We said ex- no history. She said no history. But she said two or three sentences is context. More than that is history. So that's the first sentence.
0: Didn't I ask? I'm going to do the second sentence. Not to do this. At
2: that period of time, people were begging to be let in, and they were not let in. That's the second sentence. The third sentence is this. Um, and ultimately, what happened was they let themselves in and cut everybody's head off. Now, context established. <laughs> the the current the contemporary moment is such that uh, people are deeply frustrated, angry, scared alienated, in some cases violent. Uh, it is an expression of people who are, are alienated from the economy, from their society, from their state, who want to be in. They want to be in. People want in. And that, that goes all the way back to a history that I'm not allowed to talk about because it, it exceeds the three-sentence maximum. But it goes way back. And, and what I'm trying to say is, look, uh, we have big collective problems, and at the moment we start to be... Coming scared of people, that's the moment we should be doubling down and bringing them in. Uh, because otherwise, you get particularly nasty expressions of it, including a convoy that comes and occupies the city. F- uh, so we want to find a way to bring people into to self-government. And we want to find a way to give them a chance to decide for themselves, collectively, how they want to live. And we need to support them by making sure that they have the resources, including time, capacity, skills, and money, to be able to do that. Because otherwise, you have all of these political rights on paper, but you don't have them in practice because you can't exercise them. And when you try to, nobody listens to you. And then what happens is we get decisions that don't represent what people want. They represent a particular class of people who are very good at representing that class of people and who are really bad at representing the others. And it re- produces terrible outcomes. And in the long run, it risks tearing societies and countries apart, especially as we stare down, say, climate change. So the you know there's an old line from JFK, who used it, I don't think he invented it. it, was, you know, the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. We've passed that point. Yeah. It's, it's a cloudy-ass day, but there's still some time to fix the roof. Well, we ought to be doing that, and you do that by bringing people in, and I always get a pushback when people who are like, wow, well, people don't want to do that bullshit. Yes, they do. When you ask them, they do. They can't, or they're not used to it, because you never ask, but when you give them a chance, they do, point one. And point two is, uh, uh, you know, economic, political, social elites are weary of folks. They don't want to bring them in because they don't want to lose their power. They like running the show. Well, guess what? The arc of history suggests that eventually they lose it one way or the other. So better to share it now than to lose it later. And if you, and by the way, if it comes later, you're lucky if it's the only thing you lose.
0: But as you know, people are naturally myopic. Mm-hmm. So I, I will take what you said and that income and wealth inequality the more it rises the more of a tattered society you have and I do believe that a lot of policy especially economic policy that was made during the 80s and 90s has really sacrificed what government is for government is more to provide equitable services rather than it be um, more than operationally efficient. Like, okay, operationally efficient, I understand, but this, this, this obsession with efficiency has brought us to a place where now we prefer it over any sort of equity. And when people feel like they're left out of those decisions, that they're left out of that control over their lives, they will get angry and they will... Foment and they will, if they're galvanized properly, they will get eventually violent. And I don't, I honestly don't blame people because if you've looked, I mean, we've successfully uh, exported a very robust middle class and replaced it with what? With precarious labor. And, you know, as much as people complain, you pay your taxes so that people aren't, you know, burning down your house later. And that is the material point. And I think that, unfortunately, we will probably get to close to that point. And, you know, there's a reason that religion, like the Christian right, is rising. And, of course, fascism is rising. If you look at um, Georgia Maloney, the PM of Italy, um, you know, a lot of that is couched in family values and bringing families together and the Christian family and that the benefits that are given should be given to those households to basically breed. And so if we look at this nation building that we're seeing now, it's, it's quite scary because I don't even know if like the people in charge get it or if they care I don't think they care because you know they haven't lost their power yet but it's coming
1: and on that uplifting note we're gonna take a quick break and by quick break I mean 30 seconds so we'll be right back All right, and we're back so we are shifting gears we're gonna play a game so we are now joined by Sean Menard who is the city councilor for Capitol Ward and has focused on climate justice, police accountability, and reigning in developer influence and affordable housing in Ottawa. And Sam Hirsch, who is a community builder and political organizer and whose work is focused on pushing for social, environmental, and economic justice. And, well, we're going to play a game about Twitter. We love to hate it. And, and we hate to love it. It's, we, I think we're embarrassed by loving it as much as we do. I ain't embarrassed. <laughs> David is. I couldn't tell. And while Twitter is a hellscape both on the platform and, I guess, in the office, uh, it can also be a lot of fun. But really, if we're being honest, the best thing about Twitter is the shitposting. And it's the shitposting about the people in power. And as a result, that can sometimes get you blocked. And so we're going to play a game called Blocked By. So here's how it works. Everyone's got a bunch of cards, and so I'm going to read the name of a person from Twitter and who is blocked by one of the people on stage. And in some cases, there's going to be a reason why this person blocked the said person. And so everyone's going to show you what their guess is. Are we ready? Are you done tweeting? No. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us, wow. What an honor. (laughs) All right, first up, and if you are the person who is blocked, you can also just show your name, but uh, we'll we'll flip them all at the same time. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, so this person is blocked by the former Ottawa Chief of Police Bordolo. Lock in your answers.
2: I think I know this one.
1: Yeah. Okay. Three, two, one, show. <laughs> Correct. It was Sam. <laughs> oh, Sean, you are slow. Oh wow. He's he sounds nice. <laughs> Sam doesn't remember why. Um So this answer has, so this one has two answers. So you can either show both people or just one. This person or these people are blocked by Maxime Bernier. (laughs) Because they were, well, at least one person was making fun of him. Presumably the other person was also. All right, one answer or two in three. 2 1 show Sam and David, David, David and Erica, Erica and Sam. The answers I have are Sam and David. Yeah,
4: I don't know the answer to that either. Maybe I shit post so much I don't even remember who blocks me.
2: <laughs> I think I called him a piece of shit. I think it was something like
4: like that. I, I actually saw him on the street uh in, in, in the summertime, I called him a piece of shit. In person. He was <laughs> <laughs> you know, much better than Twitter. So that's, We should grassroots organize that's, more in person. That's,
0: yeah. it, so. <laughs> that's, that's the article. kind of realness I like.
4: <laughs>
2: He's a very well-dressed man, incidentally. I...
0: Oh, yeah? Yeah.
1: Cool. <laughs> Great. Fun fact. This person is blocked by filmmaker Ava DuVernay, because they said that they had never watched her work. <laughs> Sensitive. I think I know this one. All right, answer in three, <laughs> two, one, go. <laughs> Erica <laughs> is the correct it answer. Sam great. got it wrong with David. Interesting choice. What? No, Sam put you. So, oh me? You
2: I don't know who that is actually.
4: Well, you seem very <laughs> cultured, so I assumed uh,
2: that you would. No, I no, I, I you know the fact is I'm v- I'm very much not. When it comes to movies, no, I don't know who that is. I genuinely don't. I don't. What's the movie? Oh, sorry.
0: Uh,
2: oh no, I don't. I genuinely don't know. I just watched Die geez. Hard. I I, I I feel like I failed. No, I I very when it, when it comes to films, I can watch um uh, you know anything before like 1965 or anything after like oh, 1989, f- but nothing in between.
1: Oh my God.
2: No, well, geez. No, 80s movies. 19 1980, I should say. Yeah, um, but but
1: uh, David's David's preferred genre of movie is rom com.
2: Yeah, I do like rom coms. I have no, I should say my 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 better film taste is pre nineteen sixty, and then it's trash from sort of like nineteen eighty to contemporary. Oh
0: my god, David!
2: <laughs> I'm not saying it's popular. I'm just telling you how it okay. is.
0: Okay, I'm we'll we'll you. take this up later. Yeah, I'll send you. you some stuff.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> I'll sure, right.
2: I'll watch it for sure.
1: This person had to Google, how do I know if I was blocked by someone? (laughs) Answers in three, two, one, go. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. That's why he's not playing the game. William is not blocked by anyone (laughs) on Twitter.
4: To be fair, I also did that before coming on this. uh, (laughs) That's so endearing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he takes the like Elamine Abdul-Mahmood approach and is just like pals with everyone online. <laughs> Sounds boring.
5: Can I just say that there's also like the like the hurtful unfollow, you know? So like Jim Watson at one point when I was still a counselor and Catherine McKenney was still a counselor, like unfollowed just the two of us. He followed every other <laughs> counselor, but just he unfollowed the two of us when we brought the LRT inquiry into to council, and that's when he unfollowed us, so we couldn't reply to his stuff. That was it was a hurtful unfollow, not a block, but
1: that messy bitch.
5: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: So trifling. I love a messy bitch. I just don't love Jim Watson. Actually, he's not married anymore. I love him. He's the best. This person is blocked by Globe and Mail columnist John Ibbotson because they expressed distaste for his work. All right, answers in three, two, one. Erica, Erica, two Davids and two Ericas, one Erica by herself. So uh, the Davids are wrong. Erica is correct.
2: <laughs> what what, this thing, what well, I, I love about Erica, she just straight up will go into someone's bedroom and be like, I don't know who you are, or <laughs> I don't like your stuff, or I don't read you. and I just To me, that's just so funny. Just to, be, just to go out of your way to say to somebody, I don't read you. <laughs> you're, you're I
0: That's couldn't so figure good. out which John it was. Oh, my God.
2: Can I tell a very quick
1: story, please? The one about the time and the, yeah.
2: So when, when we started tearing down statues and all of the older whites got really worked up about it. <laughs> older uh, white
1: colonists, men. Right? No, but generally, generally older whites. Okay.
2: Because, you know, people were tearing down statues of colonizers. And my position was bring down those statues. Um, if, you, if you go and look, when it first started happening, the first John A statue came down, the first three people to come out and defend him were all white men named John. Yes,
1: I know, because this was in a piece that we wrote for Canada Land, and we cited this thing, because you had told now, me about it. You had sent me a photo of the paper.
2: Iveson, Ibbotson, and Gettys. I, and I remember thinking, like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't even find a person who doesn't share the same name of this guy whose statue you're tearing down to come defend this old racist bozo? You know, because Johnny McDonald was racist for the time. People at the time were like, this is a bit much, man. And and named John, also. And named... So, anyway.
4: John Solidarity. But I
2: digress. Sorry, that was more history, but but it was funny. <laughs> No, that was good. That was good. good. That was good. Anyways, I'm probably uh, blocked by John Ibbotson now. Okay. I, I too, don't like his work, so maybe I'll join you.
1: All right, so this one has three possible (laughs) answers. You just have to name one. If you want to name two, that's fine. If you want to name all three, you can do that. These people are blocked by the self-proclaimed Prince of Darkness, Warren Kinsella. One of the people is blocked for criticizing him when he was hired by the Green Party to be the head of their quote-unquote situation room for the 2019 election. So three options here. Oh, we're gonna go for the home run? All right, three, two, one, go. David, Sam, and Erica, Sean, Sam, and Erica, Sam, Sean and David. Wow, we got a, everyone's got their name up there once. Uh, the only person I don't have on my list is David.
2: No, we follow each other. I, I can't explain it either. We we have a perfectly fine relationship as far as I can tell.
1: With, with Warren. It was, oh. did I, who, but who? Who's the answer? The answer is Sam, Erica, and Sean. Yeah. Sam is the one who criticized him for being hired by the Greens.
5: I know, I know. It's been a long time. I think I was like, I read your book and, you know, because I had read his book, his, The War Room or whatever. I oh, read yeah, that yeah. book and I was like, okay. And, you know, we had both like had like student association roots back to like Carleton and res association stuff. And I had criticized him a little bit. And I was like, you know, but we've gone to reunions and things like that together, blocked. Just like he just, he was not, he was not happy with me. I don't know. I also,
4: I love how the Green Party called. Their war room, the situation room, because they didn't want to call it the war room. <laughs>
2: Listen,
1: they're pacifists, okay? Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> it's not a war, it's just a situation. You have just a war a room here? No, it's just a situation. The,
1: the, <laughs> the Green Party's a situation. Yeah, it's just a
2: situation. <laughs> like, oh, your party's falling apart. No, it's just
1: a situation. Was Mike the situation there? I,
4: um,
1: hope not, I feel like oh, Warren Kinsella boy. was the
4: beginning of <laughs> the fall of the Green Party, probably. Oh, it's a bad omen.
1: Oh, hey. th- hmm, interesting. Uh, this person is blocked by 2022 candidate for Capital Ward, Rebecca Bromwich, because she just can't fucking take a joke. There's only one answer, you'll be surprised. The answer in three, two, one, go. Sam, Sam, oh, it's Sam. Oh, wow. David put up Sean. Yeah, I mean.
5: It was a reasonable guess. guess. I'm not a counselor. Either. I'm not her counselor, so. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and, I mean, like, throughout the entire uh, municipal election, she was attacking me and then said um, something like, uh, if you want to um, be involved in the election, um, don't do it behind the scenes. Just just run as a candidate. Uh, don't try to control everything from behind the scenes. And I was like, "Well, oh, that's kind of anti-Semitic a bit. But, um, <laughs> um, but, uh... <laughs> Uh, multiple times that she was saying, and then she blocked me. And then I was like, you know what? Thanks, Rebecca. Actually, that's, you did me a solid there.
0: <laughs> the diversity and inclusion coordinator said what? <laughs> yeah,
4: exactly, that's yeah.
0: <laughs> No, this is no joke. She was. She was. Mm. She, she was. Um,
1: a friend of mine trolls her relentlessly on Twitter. And she actually replied to him with one of, like, he trolled her and she wrote back. She's like, honestly, this was really funny and I have respect for that.
2: And then she went and got some Stella Luna. (laughs) Honk, honk. It was the worst campaign I've ever seen in my entire life. I just kept thinking, like, Rebecca, I I hope you lose. I don't respect you as a candidate. But, like, I just kept wanting to say, stop tweeting through it. Just put down your – just go knock on a door.
5: Go knock on the door. Get to know the ward. I can't tell you how many people ask me, like, did you actually enter this candidate just to have somebody running against that's that bad? But no, no, we didn't. 14% read, of people voted for her. Yep. Yeah, read the thesis.
1: <laughs> oh, well, that's nice for her. This person is blocked by Kian Bexty because uh, they were just making fun of him, um, presumably calling him Caillou. <laughs> I honestly don't know who this person is, but I was, <laughs> I I was told that it, it was implied that I should know. Uh, I even like Googled and like looked at the Wikipedia, and then like I don't know. Anyway, answers in three, two, one. He
2: looks exactly like Caillou, and it's so funny because he's <laughs> such a piece of shit, and he just I he didn't like me calling him Caillou.
0: Uh huh. Did, you know, did you know who that was?
2: I don't. I I I don't know. I I don't know. But. I suspect he might have he must have either known or looked it up but he, he didn't like it a lot of people call him caillou because he looks like and Caillou's always crying
4: and he's like a giant fucking cry baby this guy anyways i i, I don't care for him well I, I remember um when um there was the first not the convoy but the precursor of the convoy in 2019 the united we rule uh protest <clears throat> and um he was there at uh, with faith goldie on the other side they were talking and and um, <clears throat> I was yelling at them and they were yelling at me because I was part of the, the counter-protest. And, and I said, oh, you you know, rebel media is anti-Semitic and this and that and people shouldn't follow him. And he's like, my boss, Ezra Levant, is Jewish. Can't be anti-Semitic. I was like, okay. And I turned around to the crowd and I was like, did you hear that, guys? His boss is Jewish.
1: <laughs>
4: it's fine. Everything's fine.
1: All right. Last one. And speaking of Ezra Levant... The, this, per, sorry, two options. These people were blocked by Canadian conservative media personality, <laughs> okay. Ezra Levant, uh, because obviously they were making fun of him and how could you not? <laughs> two options, two options. Who is blocked by Ezra Levant? Go, show. Erica and David is the correct answer. How did you? How did you escape
4: that one, Sam? I didn't really pay to pay that much attention to, to <laughs> okay, <that's> online. The, <laughs> that is the way. <laughs> that, is, that is the way of wisdom.
2: I was making fun of him. Yes.
0: I thought he had a thicker skin.
2: Well, he's uh. So so I remember what, I remember the day that happened. He quote tweeted me, and then all of his little shitbot followers came at me, and then he blocked me. Anyways, uh, you can draw your own conclusions from that.
0: What about you? And Sue Ann Levy recently. Bought? Oh,
2: yeah. Sue Ann uh, uh, Levy, who is a... Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway.
0: Unmoisturized, she, to say
2: she the least. To, uh, she, she's <laughs> There's just so much... She would routinely kind of like pop into my mentions to just call me a piece of shit. And I, it's funny because for years I've said to people, if you want to come at me, you, you're welcome to come at me, but you're definitely going to be the one who ends up blocking me.
5: You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we can do this
2: if you want, but I'm gonna be way meaner to you than you are to me if you want to come at me because I don't like I don't try to pick a bunch of fights and I certainly don't punch down. But if someone wants to come at me, then then I'm like, everyone seen Batman 1989?
4: Truly a brilliant film.
0: Wait, wait, so what, which, what the, who is Batman? Michael
2: Keaton. <laughs> ah. That's, so
4: that's within the, the sphere of movies that you watch. Yes, yeah. yes, The so yes, shark yes. spray one? shark spray
2: one?
0: Yeah. yeah. Am I wrong about that? The, where, where they go into
2: the museum and the,
0: the spray. It, was it Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman or in, something? The, in the next in one. In the next but, one. Oh, okay. But,
2: but there's this scene where where Bruce Wayne, Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne, is in Vicki Vale, Kim Basinger's apartment. That's and, who it is. And uh, the Joker, Jack Nicholson, comes in and kind of confronts him, and he wants to create a diversion. So he, you know, fakes being insane, and he picks up a fire poker and smashes a vase and says you want to get nuts let's get nuts and that's my feeling when someone like Sue Ann know, comes at me like you want to get nuts let's get nuts so eventually she blocked me because I kept telling her to go to bed I'm like isn't it past your bedtime Sue Ann? go to bed
1: and you know there's another me. show where they did that s- a similar plot line and it was the OC
2: yes also <laughs> I also quite like the OC I'm not joking <laughs> it's not ironic
1: no it's it's really good I know. first season is a perfect season of television when Miranda
2: died i'm sorry who what not miranda is it miranda no what's her name marissa marissa oh, i'm sorry i haven't seen it in 20 years what kind
1: of elder millennial
2: are you i watched it 20 years ago i watched the whole thing i, I yeah you anyways. haven't watched it since it's been out on its back
1: right? yeah, since it was on it was back no on. oh i watched the. Whole, okay. I, I, I'm, on, I'm
2: on twitter all the time, all the time. but was, yeah the, i remember i remember the the loss of marissa um was pardon me was were you
1: were you a marissa or a summer
2: I was a Summer because um, Summer had this sort of, like, chaotic energy. And she would, like, rage blackout. Was that the thing? Mm-hmm. Her thing was, like, rage blackout, which I you found... remembers Marissa.
1: the rage blackout, but not the name of the main protagonist yeah. woman. Okay. I,
2: I, found, I found the Marissa to be just, you know, kind of, like, uh, entitled in a way I, didn't, I found mm-hmm. it unappealing.
1: Uh-huh. And uh, that's that. We're going to... Oh. P- Although, what?
2: one time, uh, very quickly, if I may. I guess... I don't like to bother people I recognize uh, from television or films or whatever in in real life because they just want to go about their day and I don't really run into them anyway. But one time I was on a plane and this uh, woman was trying to get her bag down, Porter flight, and I turned to her and said, "Can I get your bag down for you? Because I'm tallish. I'm not like Sean Tall, but I'm you know I'm six one." Yeah, you're not a freak. I'm you're not five eleven. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not I'm not five eleven. I'm six one. So I, I reached up and brought her bag down. She said, that, "Thank you," and it was. It was the mom from the OC, uh,
5: and I was like on Porter.
2: Uh, on yeah, and she's Canadian, I think. Oh, and, she is. And it was the mom from the OC, and I and I wanted so badly Which to say to her, I'm like, I loved you in the OC. Was like, Which are, mom? Uh, the blonde, San, Sandy's wife. Okay. The blonde. The yeah. blonde. Yeah. Uh, is not
0: she in the soap called Generations or something?
2: Well, we do we digress. But I I, oh, I had sorry. this moment of wanting to say to her, like, I loved you in the OC, and and I, if she's listening now.
1: <laughs> I'm...
2: I'm sorry I didn't say that because I should have. I should have. I should have when I had the chance told her how I felt about her television show.
1: Great story, and uh, we're gonna. Don't edit that out. <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break and uh, just get rid of these papers, and we'll be right back with another panel. All right, and we're back. So I am joined here by Erica, Sean, and Sam. If you all just want to like say a little hello. Hello.
5: Hi there. Can I say it's it is extremely bright up here. I'm looking at the audience. It may look like I'm looking at you, but I can't actually see your eyes or anything, so I'm not. But I'm trying not to look.
1: See, this is the benefit see- of
5: sitting on the end. That is, yeah. I have to look in the light. I can see this corner over here pretty well, but the rest of you, it's just pretend if I'm if I'm looking at you, I can't him? really see you. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Gr- thank you for your contribution. <laughs> I can't see shit.
1: <laughs> also helps having notes, so I don't have to look out. And you know. Anyway, so, you know, we just had a municipal election back in October, and Ontario elected a whole bunch of new um, local uh, candidates and councillors and mayors, and Sam played an integral role in putting together a progressive coalition of candidates across every ward here in Ottawa. And so, Sam, I'm just curious as to where this idea of this progressive coalition came from, and how did you go about... Finding these candidates?
4: Um, Well, as an organ with Horizon Ottawa, if uh, people uh, didn't know, but um, a progressive municipal organization in the city. Um, And we started in May of 2020 and really started organizing uh, in in around January 2021. So we actually started a long time before. Um, Of course, uh, 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 you know, things didn't always go as planned, and especially with the the convoy and the the occupation of Ottawa. uh, it uh, sort of threw our plans in a loop uh, there, and as well, you know, the provincial election at the same time as well. But that happens, you know, every every four years. The provincial election's always right before the municipal election. Um, but we, you know, we prioritized some wards and went out there and tried to um, recruit uh, uh, folks. We put it out there that you know we're looking for progressive candidates and. Um, Sort of did the work and leveraged, uh, you know, we have about 800 members now. <clears throat> in The organization sort of leveraged their connections with within their communities and try to, um, you know, uh, uh, see who from different social movement-based groups do because that's really who we try to get to run. Uh, really, folks who wouldn't normally run as candidates were people we really try to um, to get involved uh, as opposed to you know the same same old folks who have the privilege and. And money and whatnot to to become candidates, but um, and some were successful, others others weren't. Um, and especially at the school board level, we were we were very pleased to see that a lot of the transphobic candidates were were defeated. Uh, one of them in particular, when uh, talking about Twitter, Chanel Fall, who was very active on Twitter, actually we were very worried about that, but she came she came a distant third uh, <laughs> in, nice. in, in in her elections. So yeah.
1: And so when you say that you started prioritizing wards, <laughs> which wards were you prioritizing, and why?
4: well we uh you know we we did a survey of our membership <clears throat> and 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 there were certain principles and criteria that we asked them to look at and, and some of those ranged from things like how much they disliked the incumbent um versus um uh you know what ward who was uh, not gonna run again or likely not to run again at that point and who um <clears throat> what what ward is sort of like um leans more progressive but doesn't have as much of a progressive counselor like um you know, some wards in the South, like Alta Vista, other wards. Um, so there was, like, multi- a multitude of factors. Um, the, the one about who which incumbent they disliked the most was really a, a big one, uh, but uh, we didn't always find a good candidate to uh, to run out there uh, th- in those wards, unfortunately.
1: Are you talking about Beacon Hill Cervo? <laughs> yeah,
4: that was one in particular, yeah, that we, we really tried to find a, a good candidate there, and we uh, that councillor in particular was one who took a lot of developer money in, the, in 2018, uh, and... And also, Canada uh, South, uh, Alan Hubley was was another one. He's also another one who's uh, particularly bad. Um, but I won't I won't I won't make Sean uh, say because he he has to work with all these people. But I'm allowed to say whatever
1: I want. So. That's true. <laughs> and so, Sean, you played an important role with this progressive block <laughs> actively bringing together multiple campaigns and encouraging your supporters to donate to their campaigns. And so how did that come about and what was the benefit of all of this
5: yeah i mean we we had fundraised uh when we entered and we had basically raised the maximum within a, a month and a half and i was just saying earlier like, twitter as a tool for those sorts of things we raised more on twitter than we did from like fundraising emails that that is a very valuable tool for progressive organizing in, in that way um but then you know we looked at the wards that were available there were seven women candidates that were running from across the city that we wanted to support um, you know, and and I mean, there was one in Alan Hubley's ward as well that uh, that came out to our fundraisers. You know, and would be part of it. We just said we're not we're not taking any more money. We've raised the max, and so we wanted to donate to to them. I mean, the big thing is that you know the municipal electoral sphere. Is um, it's really the the turnout is not high, and so if you have you know even a bit of fundraising, knock on a lot of doors, talk to people individually. There's no parties there, right? So those individual connections matter so much, and you need to have a bit of money to run. You can run a campaign and win with like fifteen thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, you know. So it's uh, it's it's still a significant sum, but there's there's um, a huge benefit to doing that. So I think a lot of those candidates that we had supported at that time. Ended up winning um, and are now new counselors. and so we've got a you know we've got a, a good new council, um, and a lot of those folks that were you know, planning on um, on running this time around, I think saw open races. You know you saw Rick Shirelli resign and Lane Johnson came in. Um, you know you saw other other councilors not running again. Uh, Diane Dean's not running again. Jessica Bradley came in. Right. Uh, Marty Carr ran in place of Jean Cluche where there was an open ward, won that race. Um, you know, and you saw you, you saw close races. I think in Canada South, where where Hughley was, and probably like one of the most deeply deeply unpopular, uh, I guess, incumbent in terms of voter turnout in the splits that happened there. And you had three women running against him and, and another guy, and they sp- they split the vote. I mean, together had they worked together, they would have won, I think. Um, Ruba Fatal, Aaron Coffin, and Bina Shaw, and so. It it was just about uh, coalescing support around uh, mostly open races um, uh, to to try to get folks in that are going to be a bit more progressive this term of council. So mostly it worked out well. And and to that point, just to add, I mean,
4: we really tried to um – and in, in that case in particular, we're not successful in, in Canada South. But we really one of the reasons we really wanted to try to organize early was because we wanted to avoid that possibility of a vote split, where because um, <clears throat> you know, and I spoke to a lot of different organizations across the city. Usually, what happens is that organizations, progressive organizations, put out a survey, and then <clears throat> a bunch of candidates answer the survey, and they're like, "Here are these five candidates who gave these good answers." And it's like, "Well, who do I choose?" And they split the vote. So that's something we try to avoid by endorsing. A, one candidate, and and, and and in some cases, like in Canada South, it, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, there were, I mean, some were more progressive than others, but there were multiple candidates running against the, um, as Sean said, the pretty unpopular incumbent who still ended up winning with only 30% of the vote or 33% of the vote or something like that.
1: And so, voter turnout in Canada is generally not great. It's obviously <laughs> better in a federal election, um, and the last few elections, it's kind of generally just kind of been embarrassingly low with some of the elections across Ontario, this t- turnaround garnering like 20% of voter turnout. Um, and so what can we do to engage people in the political process at all levels of government, but like especially at the local level where these issues are just, touch people's lives on a day-to-day basis. I, I like I'm interested in everyone's answer on this.
5: Yeah, I mean, I can start the, you know, traditionally you see federal uh, higher, highest voter turnout, provincial, municipal. That's That's been constant, right? And, and Ottawa had about the same voter turnout this time around as they did last time compared to other municipalities that, that was higher. It was still abysmal, right? Um, not good to have lower than 50%. I think it was 43 point something percent. Um, but what we found municipally is if you engage people and you make the effort, they will go out and vote. So, you know, in 2018, when, when you know, Sam was running my campaign in 2018 uh, with, with Miles, we, we knew like there was an incumbent in the race. There was somebody that was the Glebe Community Association president. We were not going to win the traditional votes in that ward. Right? We had no business winning, and so we were like, we had to work the periphery, we went into Carlton. we did petitioning at Carleton, talked to students about issues they cared about. We knocked in every door, we went to OCH buildings, and they're like, we've never seen a candidate here before, right? so we're knocking doors in OCH buildings. They have a pole in their building too, and so who has poles in their building and who doesn't? Lee's Towers don't have poles in their buildings, but that would encourage voter turnout if they did, if we organized in that way, and so we knocked every single door, we did the periphery, we got you know folks who rent, people take transit, we would go on buses and be like, hey, what do you think about you know lowering transit fares and free transit on Bank Street? Uh, how can you know how can we work together to get these sorts of ideas on the agenda? And those people ended up ended up voting right, and so we won by 300 votes. Uh, and I think we had like 400 votes out at Carlton, and, and 95% of them were for our team, right? So it's just if you if you talk to people about issues they care about, and the voter turnout I think was 52% in Capital Ward, which that was the highest in the city at that time. Um, so if you legitimately talk to people and you you care about you know the issues that 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 they care about. Um, they will go out and vote and and it's you know, voter contact is extremely important to just seeing them at the door phone calls to follow up with them um, It wor- works municipally and that's why you know people are kind of questioning and maybe you'll have a question on this I'm not sure but you know, can a progressive win in Ottawa and absolutely they can win in Ottawa I know it's it feels dejected right now because of, of what happened with with Catherine um but and it, and the the setup for, for Catherine in terms of the narrative couldn't have been more perfect in terms of you know what had happened with the LRT and the convoy occupation and um, you know the issues around uh, you know disenfranchisement. Uh, Of folks right across the city with with uh, Watson leaving after 12 years We thought there was gonna be a huge split race Catherine, you know was was entering with very good conditions And so this narrative that that progressives can't win, but I don't I don't actually think that's accurate I think because of the the lack of political parties there when you do talk to people you organize two years in advance You're at their door um, You can you can win uh, And the narrative isn't changing Right. And, I, you know, the the, the stuff around that that we had built right around, you know, mental health response and not police response and lowering transit fares instead of increasing them in a pandemic and not having poor dealership tax breaks, but community center investment and affordable housing instead of, you know, developer Um, you know, um, tax breaks and uh, subsidies. These things are still, they still exist. The narrative is still there, and they're broadly progressive left populist ideas that will still win the day in the future, and they're not going to go away, this next council. They're going to be there. Um, And so, you know, progressives can win. It's just a, we we need to do a better job of of getting into those buildings, getting voter turnout up, and it it is really very much a um, contact-based support game.
0: I have... um Actually, I think what you said about two years before is so critical. And, you know, whenever I've worked on campaigns and stuff, you've had people who decide four months before, and you're just like, yeah, that's not enough time. And the progressives who do win. I know on the podcast we talked about Blake Desjolais, who is NDP, I believe, in Edmonton, who won. Um... If NDP can win in Edmonton federally, I feel like progressives can win everywhere. Um, And so, but how you unseat people is that everyday hard work, that thankless work, right? Of going, knocking on doors, of facing the electorate. And I think it's so important to do that because it's like, it's kind of like how um, Papa Trudeau brought in all these West Indian people in, like, the 70s and 80s. These people, <laughs> these, the, the, like, older generation of black people in this country remember that, and they have voted liberal ever since they came to this country. <clears throat> oh. Well, let's put it this way. The majority of them, would you agree? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah and and exactly exactly and that's that's it's so ingrained in us right that well conservatives don't care about about um, immigrants uh, Papa Trudeau my my parents voted liberal forever because of that right the the fact is the people who bring you in a lot of these people will be loyal to you as voters but it, it's just that it takes Quite a bit to bring them in because the structure is set up to keep them out.
4: Yeah, and <clears throat> to that point, actually went one of the the first campaign that I ever was involved with. I'm from Montreal, and it was in Montreal North, which is some people know a, a very racialized uh, uh, community and 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 low income, and and uh, there were a lot of folks like that, a, a Haitian community, who were like, yeah, Tr- Trudeau signed. My immigration papers, or my parents' immigration papers, so I'm I'm voting for him, and uh, they ended up voting for the Liberal there, Emmanuel Dubourg, who I think might still be the MP for Montreal North, and it was oh him yeah, and it was actually it was Denny Kader's seat before that too, who's also not a great guy, um, and Emmanuel Dubourg would literally be in these low-income neighborhoods driving his Mercedes, and they're still gonna like yeah, I'm voting for this guy, so
0: he looks yeah. the type.
4: Yeah, so it it. it you're right that resonates with people but to to the point about about starting in advance too and another thing that's important is um for a lot of these people too um it takes a lot you, you have to ask more than once for them to run so like <clears throat> when it gets down and i found that when i get down got down to the wire and it's like two or three months before if you're asking them for the fir- for the first time three months before the election then the next time you ask them is like a couple of weeks or a month. if you ask them two years before, then you can wait a bit longer to ask them again. so if if you have to really, you know, if someone is not sure about it doesn't want to do it because you know I found I find that um first time they're like, oh, maybe and then and then you ask again, but but if you only if you're only thinking about it you know two or three months before it's 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 uh, small chance of, of of running. I mean, I mean, for Sean's campaign, I mean, we did start. Pretty late, and, and ended up ended up winning, but it's not not often the case that 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 ends up working out that way.
1: Yeah, and I think in terms of like voter engagement, the early and often is always good because you know of course municipally we interact with government all the time, whether it's snow removal in the winter, whether it's garbage removal, whether it's potholes, whether it's all of these things, paying your property taxes we often forget that that is a function of government. And so when I explain to people, they're like, well, what is, why do I need to vote for city council? I'm like, well, they, they they take away your garbage. Like, do you just want it to pile up in in your yard? I'm like, oh, right, yeah, okay, that. I guess that's a good reason. And so, like, these reminders of, like, what government actually does for us, because it's just...
0: The so, normals. So
1: frictionless, yeah, the normals, but, like, it's just so frictionless to them, they don't have to think about it, because they, they're not... You know, diseased like we are <laughs> with politics, the politics disease. But uh, on election night, we were at Sean's uh, campaign event with Ariel's and who else was it? It was um, Laura. Laura Schontz. Yeah. Laura Shantz. yeah. yeah. Uh, so Eric and I were there, and, you know, the results were coming in, and the election had been called in favor of Mark Sutcliffe. And so we're, Eric and I were obviously very, Bummed by this. And so we're like, okay, like, you know, voter turnout in Ottawa is always going to be not the best. And it's hard to get people to change political parties or, you know, they vote either because of like tradition or because they're very capitalistic or whatever. So, like, we really have to start thinking about like what Stacey Abrams has done in Georgia, right? We have to expand the electorate rather than convince people otherwise. And this like started, so like the campaign for a progressive mayor, whoever that may be, has to kind of start now. The problem is it's like, we now have an incumbent and Ottawa is like third worst in the country on, inc- or I think in the province on incumbency. So I think it's like 12 years, the average counselor is in place in Ottawa as an incumbent, which is very bad. And we just don't know. There's just so many questions, but. The thing is, the work has to start now because we have to keep reminding people that these things matter and that, like, well, I mean, it's dumb to say, it's cliche to say that, like, every vote matters and every vote counts, but it's true.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's there is, there's reason to be hopeful, right? If you look at the history of the, the city after it amalgamated, right, you had... Uh, Alex Munter run a campaign in 2006 against Larry O'Brien and Bob Shirelli. Like a, a similar kind of uh, makeup, like kind of business guy and like, you know, fairly progressive person. And then Bob Shirelli. Bob Shirelli. Bob Shirelli. <laughs> Bob Shirelli. Bob Shirelli. And Bob's your uncle. Bob he took he took 15% of the vote at that time. 15%. I mean, he had been involved further than he, than he was this time around, um, you know, previously. But he only took 5%. So, you know, Catherine's campaign took 38% of, of the vote. Uh, and we said at the very beginning of this, that's what we know we can probably get if everything goes very, very, like, pretty well, you know? Um, and, and taking 25 to 30% in the suburbs uh, with, a, with a high 30%, because we thought this was going to be a very split race. 12 years of Jim Watson, lots of people are going to run. We're going to have five or six main contenders in there, and a, and a high 30% we will win this election. It so happened that they, the, the establishment in Ottawa, right, organized to pick one candidate. And we were hearing names all the time. We're like Mark Sutcliffe would be, you know, the a very, you know, difficult person to beat because, you know, Radio Voice, he's very seen as like, you know, kind of centrist, center right, and able to bring that establishment together, which is exactly what happened. And so people that would have run, that were talking about running otherwise did not because they kept him out. The establishment got behind him. Bob Shirelli, who was not a Jim Watson fan, we thought would take more than the five percent he took. Uh, you know, and if he had taken the fifteen percent like he did back in two thousand and six, this would have been a very, very close election in that way. And so there's reason to be hopeful because you know you had uh, Clive Dusset previously the, to, to this election who ran. You know, all of that that data, that organizing, a lot of those folks that are there, they're still here in Ottawa. They're still organizing. And Kat McKenny comes in and takes thirty-eight percent under very good conditions, but you know, not a, not a super early start and not a split race. And so in in the future. There, there is, there's big possibilities. Depends how this term goes. Who knows, right? Where things are going to go, you know, the non-ideology term. Um, we're going to see what what happens, and there's there's potentially deeply popular, or deeply unpopular sentiment that'll come up from this, and potentially split votes in the future, and the organizing that can take place three years in advance that can that can you know build upon the progressive campaigns that have been running so far, and all like all of that stuff, all of that 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 data, that organizing, that like the the connections with people. That is still there, and so that can be built upon to to you know push for forward in, in 2026. It's just a very early start that has to happen, um, but I'm hopeful about it. You know, I think there's there's reason to be hopeful.
0: Well, I'm hopeful that um, we not only focus on organizing for the um, mayoral race and the, for the race, but that that kind of organizing can also. Um, do a dual purpose of holding this mayor to account because no matter what, we are going to have to do that to actually start to shift those, those ideas and those thoughts and, and what people think of and maybe the way we, we message things and stuff like that and, and bringing more people in. I, I just think that there's no, you know, there's just no off day, I guess. And maybe we're obsessed. I don't know.
4: Well, that that that's sort of what I was thinking uh, when the election had happened, and I was like, yeah, well, you know, this is not ideal, but and and but there's more there's an organizing opportunity, but this just means that there's some more work to do, and I'm like, if Catherine got elected, I we could we could maybe take a bit of a breather. I mean, Catherine was great, but you know, there were obviously some shortcomings too. And politically, I think there could have been some bolder promises, or there were missteps and whatnot, as I'm sure. Folks will, as folks reflect more over time. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the narrative will change a bit, but there's also, I mean, we saw the true colors sort of, and I know a campaign, uh, Mark Sutcliffe might be different than Mark Sutcliffe now, but I mean, we saw a campaign where uh, Horizon Ottawa, we went at him for the $1,200 a plate fundraiser, cash for access fundraiser, and the way that he came back at us was, uh, extremely, like, under the belt, like, really, like, making up false claims about our organization, about how we were, like, <laughs> accepting money over the donation limit, which was obviously untrue. Um, so, I mean, I mean, if he was doing that sort of thing, I mean, I mean, what's stopping him from having, like, thin skin during this whole whole term? I mean, a- again, like, I'm not going to make assumptions before anything happens. And, I mean, I saw, uh, criticized uh, Mark Sutcliffe uh, uh, just a bit on Twitter after he was, el- he was elected and people were like, oh, that's real, real classy, Sam. And I'm like... <laughs> Okay, sorry. Like you can't say anything about this guy, you know. I know it's been a day since uh, he's been mayor or whatnot, but I mean, you know, like um, uh, there's still legitimate criticisms to make because he did make his policy uh, priorities clear during the campaign. One of those also being let's put more money into the police after uh, years of really our organization and other councillors and Sean as well and, and other folks within the community. And to Erica's point about <clears throat> holding people accountable, but also like the social based movement organizing that has to happen during not just election based organizing, um, and, and 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 that's going to be a big fight. That's going to happen. I mean, uh, uh, Sutcliffe will likely push ahead, and with with our new police chief in Ottawa, who who had a big role in the in the raids on uh, uh territory. Uh, I mean, and that's gonna that's a real I uh, think to unpack in itself. So I mean, there's a lot of fights to be had, and I think. A lot of a lot of battles to 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 be fought. Um, so I mean, and I, I think especially with the, when it comes to the police. I mean, that we we saw the police chief today actually put out a statement and saying um, this police force isn't isn't broken. And I mean, to a point, he's not wrong because you know the police aren't broken, They're working as exactly as they should. Um, but this is someone who is coming from outside the city, who's coming in and, and, and saying like nothing's wrong. Um, and and I'm sure Sutcliffe is very happy with that. Uh, so I mean, there's a lot to be said there, and and uh,
0: don't they look related to you? Well,
4: I thought they were the same person. Yeah, I thought, <laughs> I, thought I thought it I thought, was
0: Mark. I was like, yeah. who's this guy? <laughs> they do look similar. They well, you know smart. what?
4: You know what's funny too. Sorry, but uh, I was there. Were the citizen uh, during the campaign would, would do these questions for mayoral candidates. One of the questions were, "What did you want to be when you were growing up?" And Mark Suckliff said he wanted to be a cop,
5: and I was like, "Well, wow, that tracks." <laughs> <laughs> We uh, we we met recently, right? And we, we had like an hour discussion about things. And he's been meeting with all the city councilors, <coughs> and every the, everybody right now is trying to row in the same direction because we've just had like a, a hellish four years, right? Like just like occupation, COVID, LRT breakdowns, like so many one in one hundred year climate disasters that have, that have gone on in the city. Like we've really been through it, and so everyone's kind of just ready, like okay, like let's let's advance Ottawa. Let's do what we can to like really row the ship. So I'm like I'm in this state where I'm. I'm giving the full chance to this right and like here's all of branches you know you, you you talked about building affordable housing I'm there let's do that right now we want to collaborate let's collaborate on affordable housing right away you know you said that you want to talk about ending uh, brownfield grants and developer subsidies. Let's do that, right? The SIP program that got the tax break for the post dealerships talked about ending that. So, I'm like, let's let's hold them accountable. And I think you know the organizing in communities is what's most important. You go to you know an OCH building and talk to them about you know what what they need. I remember the power outage, you know, bringing food. That that sort of organizing in between elections is what builds community-based power, and that community's power will translate later on into you know um, I think electoral success. But that is the most important thing to do in between elections, and. That work started started yesterday, right? Two days ago, um, but I'm going to give you know uh, the full benefit of the doubt to start things off, and I think a lot of counselors are, are feeling that way. Um, it's just we'll see how things we'll see how things go. I hope it goes well.
1: Thank you so much. We love you. You're, you're, you're amazing. Uh, check us out, badandbitchy.com, and uh, we'll catch you later.